Hey there, welcome to Bandit's Keep. I am Daniel. In this episode, we're going to talk a little bit about the elves from my OD&D or campaign that I'm planning on running. Um, actually, I recorded that segment. I was going to put it out as its own podcast, and then I had some calls come in and stuff. So um, when we get to that segment, it's going to seem like there's another intro, <laughs> seem like there is another intro, and then also an outro. Don't leave right after that, because um, there's more. Basically, after that, we're going to go into some calls from Jason from Nerds RPG Variety Cast, and then I've got an unboxing. Okay, welcome to Bandit's Keep. I am Daniel, and I was going to do this a little bit more um, with preparation, but I decided because I'm sitting out here and I've got nothing else to do, and I have to watch this yard sale, which is pretty dead right now on a Sunday morning. So I'm going to actually just spitball some ideas and that I have for using elves in OD&D. So for those of you who don't know, uh, in the original Dungeons & Dragons uh books, and the, the first three books, the Little Brown books as they're called, the elf is described as being able to be a fighter or a magic user, and that they can choose at the beginning of each adventure which one they will be. This is the beginning, or the first, or how you want to call it, multi-class or dual class. It doesn't, in most people's minds, it doesn't make sense, right? Because it also states that they can use... Uh, well, it doesn't actually state that they can use all the weapons when they're when they're not uh, when they're operating as a magic user, but I think that's implied. Um, but what they what does say is they can wear magic armor when they are acting as a magic user. So it's kind of interesting, right? So basically, you've got this situation where when you're an elf, uh, you've got uh, an option right at the beginning of play. Okay, so I'm going to an adventure today. Do I want to be a fighter or do I want to be a magic user? Now, it does say the experience points are tracked separately. They level up separately. So, you know, all that's covered. So it's not like it doesn't have any rules. But I think narratively people just can't figure out why. Um, so, for instance, okay. Uh, I'm going to actually read it to you because <laughs> I found it. Elves can begin as either fighting men or magic users and freely switch class whenever they choose from adventure to adventure, but not during the course of a single game. Okay, so, again, that's basically what I said. Thus, they gain the benefits of both classes and may use both weaponry and spells. Okay, so again, it depends on how you want to interpret that, right? Because it says that they can use weaponry and spells. Um, so you might take that as, well, yeah, well, when they're a fighter, they can use weaponry and spells weaponry and when the magic user can use spells but i think what makes people think that you can always use weapons is um they specifically call it armor they may use magic armor and still act as magic users however they may not progress beyond fourth levels of fighting man blah blah i know people do not uh some people do not like level caps and that might be another thing to talk about if uh if that's something that interests people go ahead and let me know what you think about level caps i'm quite sure that people that have started with the more modern editions just don't get it and that might be an interesting topic so let me know if you guys care about that in any way form or fashion and that could be another topic but for now let's talk about elves okay so why is it that elves can be both and other people can't but also that they can freely switch between them but not in the middle of an adventure so i started thinking about a few different things about elves one of which was in some older editions of D&D, under the spell Raise Dead, it lists, like, most of the player character races. So it lists humans, it lists dwarves, I think, uh, halflings. But it does not list elves. Now, that very well could have been a typo. 
there are many things in D&D lore that I think were just mistakes that people just rolled with and people dig for deeper meaning. Um, but let's let's assume for a second that it was that that's true. Like elves can't be raised be raised dead because the spell says so. And the reason why is because elves do not have a soul. That's basically what people would used to say. Elves are basically eternal. They do not have a soul, so when they they die, there's nothing else. Like, the elf is just there, right? That's why they lived so long, right? There's not two separate parts, body and, and soul. Now, in as time progressed, there became this idea of, because there's elven gods and stuff, right? So there became this idea of elves have a spirit. So again, I feel like that's people making stuff up to work with the thing that they had already made up that, that you really didn't need to make up to start off with. But using that, because it exists now, um, I thought to myself... Perhaps elves actually are have two spirits, one of a warrior and one that embraces uh, the, the spirit of magic, right? One that is a magic user, essentially. And what essentially happens is elves can only bring one of those two spirits to the prime material plane, or however you want to say it, like out of the Feywild, because in my world is going to be a Feywild. So if the elf uh, goes into the Feywild, as, let's say, in their fighting man, uh, capacity, they then become one. But as they leave the Feywild, they must leave behind part of their spirit uh, in order to remain basically an elf. And when they do that, they can, you know, they're going to leave behind either the fighting man part or the magic user. And essentially, that what that means ultimately, I haven't worked out the mechanics for it yet, is that if an elf dies. Um, let's say you, you're an elf and you go out as a fighting man and you, uh, go out and you're going on an adventure and you fall in a pit trap and you die. Technically, that elf's magic user spirit is still alive, if you will, in the Feywild. And that means that while elves cannot be raised from the dead, in the theory, if you are an elf player character, you could have your magic user <clears throat> spirit adventure you could never go back to being a fighting man right because you would uh you wouldn't have that in you anymore however you could step out basically so that character now you might be thinking oh what what, what, elves automatically get two lives well i mean i think narratively the vast vast majority of elves are not going to ever think to do this because since elves do not have a soul if they step out into the world with their last piece of spirit and they die they are literally gone gone into nothingness which is probably you know based on elven culture the worst thing that could possibly happen to them they are literally destroyed in spirit and in body so very the only reason why an elf would ever do that is if they absolutely needed to you know revenge or i mean there's reasons right and you could even you could even make a player character that, that you know you could choose that's the case and say, yeah, my elf is only of one soul because this happened to them. That'd be a cool background, right? Um, so this could be something that could be really interesting in play. The other thing that I'm doing with elves is I am um, creating... So I'm changing clerics slightly. Um, and I'm going to allow clerics to use any weapon if they want. But clerics do not generally use swords. And the reason for that is because... If when you are an elf and you reach a certain point in your life, I don't want to call it lifespan because they basically they'll live more or less forever. Um, you some of them just they basically go off into the gray or whatever they call it in, in Tolkien, right? So at some point they basically just go away. 
um, to live basically in a place that they could never come back for. Some basically would be the heaven for elves, right? Um, however, some of them that feel like there's still work to be done in, in the in the world choose to place their souls into a vessel, and that vessel is always, at least is my plan, is always a magic sword. So in my world, all magic swords are sentient swords. They are all sentient. They all have the soul of an elf. So a cleric will not choose to use a sword because clerics do not, you know, in a sense, remember, elves are eternal. Elves basically live forever. So elves are kind of like demigods, if you want to think of it like that. All elves are, right? All the fae, basically. So a cleric would 100% not want to wield or touch or interact with, you know, you know, I mean, they're not going to, like, shun it, but they're not going to want to swing a sword that has the soul of an elf in it, because that would almost be like using, um, you know, the, the magic or the power of another god. So it'd be basically a huge cardinal sin. So in my world, the reason why clerics do not use swords has nothing to do with drawing blood or any of that kind of stuff. It has to do with uh, religious practice brought about because they would never touch a magic sword, so they just don't learn how to fight with swords because why take that chance, right? Um, so a cleric is not going to really use a sword. They could, you know, in theory, uh, pick up a sword and use it if they needed to. Uh, I might treat them as a, like, let's say they didn't have anything and there's only a sword, and they knew it wasn't a magic sword. You could probably pick it up, but I might treat it as, like, uh, with a penalty, right? Because they, they're just not trained in them. And if you were a cleric and you're trained in the sword, yeah, you're <laughs> you're just not a cleric. I mean, that just, uh, you, you just wouldn't do that. So, yeah, uh, you're not getting everything you want, I guess, with, <laughs> with the clerics. I know people want them to be able to use whatever weapons. But I think that, that, again, makes a narrative reason why. I know I'm talking about clerics now, not elves, but it's connected. Uh, it makes a narrative reason why elves, uh, why, I'm sorry, clerics do not use swords, it also, because I'm thinking, and again, I don't know. I mean, there's lots of reason. Again, in D&D history, people will talk about, well, no, it's because this saint didn't use, you know, I mean, I sit on the side of the table that believes that the main reason why they don't have clerics using swords is because a, um, a balance. Because if you look at OD&D and even BX, like something like 20% of magic items are magic, are magic swords. So if you look at the original little brown books, the three books, the only class that can use a magic sword is a fighting man, which basically means that fighters will automatically get 20% of, of the magic items. And ultimately, fighters become very, very powerful because of these swords. You know, they don't have the spells and stuff that the magic users and clerics have. So the fighter's magic sword is going to be their magic. So by allowing anybody to use magic swords... I think that you kind of set yourself up at a position where, um, where you know, it, you take away from fighters. And I think that's long been a thing, right? People talk about that a lot, how, how fighters are like the worst class or the most boring class, I guess is what a lot of people say. I love fighters. And what I've discovered in this chainmail OD&D uh, combination, which isn't really a combination, it's like the, the original way that, that was suggested possibly to play, uh, might be the better way to say it, is what I found is that Fighters become so good. Like, they are, like, the best class. You want to be Conan. You want to be Fluffered. You want to be the Grey Mouser, you know, um, who I know was probably more of a thief, although he's not really a thief. Um, you know, in, in modern day, he'd be, certainly be a rogue. Uh, so I think that, like, those are the people that you want to be. You want to be John Carter, right? I mean, John Carter, I, think, I mean, at least for me, the, the term fighting man 
you see that appear a lot in John Carter. So I feel like that's kind of where uh, they even got that from, at least on some level. Somebody knows differently than let me know. But I think that, like, that brings a fighter back as the most bad, you know, I, I don't swear on my podcast, so the most tough uh, and cool character to play. And, and again, it, it makes sense narratively in my world. So clerics don't use the swords for religious reasons. Magic users just simply aren't trained in using swords. Um, so again, a magic user could theoretically swing a sword, but they'd be so bad at it that it just wouldn't be worth their while to, to do it, you know. Um, so I think, uh, again, I would give them a penalty. I wouldn't I wouldn't say a magic user banned from swinging a sword. It would just be like an AD&D, you know, first edition. A magic user could theoretically use a sword, but they would be just crappy at it. So, I mean, uh, clerics, I would say, because they're warriors, it doesn't make sense that they wouldn't be able to use a sword. At least on some level. But, um, you know, they're not going to use it for religious reasons. And those religious reasons have to do with the elves. So now, on that note, um, you know, because of all this, I'm telling you, the elves have no gods. Right? There is no god for the elves because... Elves are eternal. You know, the elves are the fae. They're essentially demigods themselves. They have ancestors who, again, go off at some point into the into the gray when they feel like they've accomplished all they can on Earth. And they have ancestors who become magical swords. Um, and this all kind of, uh, you know, works out to a world that is going to... Because I'm going to have minimal... Um, I know there's been some discussion of uh, deities and pantheons. Uh, BJ has been talking about it a little bit with uh, Jason... Uh, over on the Arcane Alienus, uh, BJ on the Arcane Alienus, that is Jason from Nerds Aqua Variety Cast. They've had some little back and forth about pantheons and such. Um, and to me, um, I think it was Jason. I could be confused there. Let me know, BJ, if we knew it was, because I'm not going to go back and listen now. Um, you know, just the idea of like how many pantheons, how you're going to use the gods, or whatever. Are there, is there just one set of gods and just people worship them differently? Um, that's kind of how I'm going to run my world. The, actually, currently, as I've been kind of playing it out, because instead of just sitting down and writing up a world, I've been letting it develop as I've been playing one-shots with OD&D. And <laughs> because all the clerics I made worship the same god in the beginning, because I kept using the same cleric and just redoing their stats and stuff, uh, I decided that there is only one god in my world, which is uh, uh, Hastor, who is the... Uh, you know, for those of you who like Cthulhu, right, he eventually becomes the king in yellow. But Hastur uh, was originally mentioned as the god of sheep herders. So Hastur is the only remaining god in my world because there was a huge, like, apocalypse of the gods. And they basically all killed each other. And Hastur just kind of, you know, he's a sheep herder. He just kind of <laughs> stayed out of the way. And so he ended up being the only god that remains. Um, although there was just an adventure where another god might have been created. But in any case, there's only the one god and humans worship them. I'm doing dwarves and halflings a little differently too. They're not really going to have gods either. So I'm keeping it. I'm not going to do this like large pantheon Greek or Roman thing. And, I, and I'm also not doing a monotheistic, uh, more kind of, I guess, I don't even want to call it modern because it doesn't feel like a, a appropriate way to say it. But, you know, like, a, a, I guess, Judeo, Judeo-Christianity or that kind of thing. Um, you know, I'm saying that right. I'm not going to do that either. There's just one God because there's one God left. It's not that people didn't believe or worship the other gods. It's just that Astro is the only one that's living. So, um, Hastur is the last living god. So, clerics are all going to worship Hastur, the god of sheep herders. Um, and that basically came out in play. My plan is to, and I think, like, when I see some of these published campaign settings, I think the better ones that I've seen are ones where people say stuff like, well, yeah, this was a campaign that I played at my table for three years, you know, and then I turned it into a, uh, a setting. Versus somebody that just sits down and goes, I'm going to make a setting and then sell it. 
So, you know, I'm hoping that, uh, that I'll develop something nicer by letting it happen in play and as the characters create the mythology um, as they go, you know, the characters and the players, you know, because I, I like to think of D&D as a, as a group effort. So that's kind of how I do it. Um, that's my take on elves. Oh, I've almost said the final thing. So if you read my chainmail document, you will see that elves are exceptionally good with magic swords, which again ties into this whole idea, right? When an elf is armed with a magic sword, they basically kick butt. So, again, they do that because the 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 elvish the the souls of elves are in the swords, and and I think too, just in case you're thinking, you may have this question. This is my initial thought, but again, let me know what you guys think. Um, I'm thinking that it's not going to be because I can imagine somebody saying right now, well, then only elves should be able to use magic swords. You know, no, I don't think so because I feel like that the elves that decided to dedicate themselves to these swords are doing it for the betterment of the of the of humanity, basically. You know, they. They're high-level elves, probably as high as, as high-level as an elf could get, which means they had ventured out into the world of man, and they felt like they could do more good there. So they went back. So they're, they're essentially, while they are definitely more powerful in the hands of elves, I mean, they are on a lot of levels designed for man. So let me know what you guys think. I mean, uh, how do you guys run elves? Do you like to have different types of elves? Because, of course, in this case, I'm not going to have wood elves and high elves, whatever, like elves are basically elves. I mean, and so far as that's concerned. There might be different, you know, clans of elves or whatever, but they're not going to be completely different races. They're just, they're all fae. They might all look different. Um, I had considered some ideas, like if you guys have any ideas about doing this, I thought maybe like when they were in one form or the other, magic user or fighting man, maybe they would have slight differences themselves, possibly be a different gender. That's another way to think about it. Or, you know, like, so you're, maybe your fighting man is female and your magic user is male, uh, gendered, uh, or possibly... Um, Maybe they have just different color hair. Maybe they look different. Maybe they don't look different at all. Maybe they look exactly the same, but they just, which would probably freak humans out, right? <laughs> so I think that that's all really interesting. Um, and uh, and I love playing with that kind of strangeness of elves because I've mentioned this before on my YouTube channel that I like my elves to be strange fey folk, not so much Tolkien-esque modern D&D elves that are basically just humans that are better than humans and have pointy ears. Like I like my elves to be odd and strange and basically alien and i think this will help with that so yeah as i said let me know um go ahead and if you don't already you can follow me over on youtube as well um that is keep of course and um, until next time i shall see you soon hey daniel as far as criticals and fumbles go i like them i enjoy the the funny tables i, I like like role master and the various tables in there but i know a lot of players don't and it's not a big deal to me either way. Although, like you, I, I do like having the rule that, you know, one is always going to be a miss and a 20 is always going to be a success. Uh, but but aside from that, and, and actually, I also like to have a way for a 20 to be that unique hit that actually hits a, a magical creature that couldn't be harmed any other way, right? To be able to do some damage, you, you know, no matter what. In, in a game where you're playing humans fighting Godzilla, that might not be, you know, with hand weapons, that might not be realistic. But, you know, in, in most encounters, you know, you like to have that, that off chance. And it probably won't kill that creature, but it'll do enough to maybe, unfortunately for the character, make them the primary target, because now they've just elevated in threat status, right? Yeah, I definitely think for a certain type of game, I like the kind of bizarre uh, crits. Like, I love them in... Uh, DCC, because when I'm playing DCC, I love the, when a crazy high roll means something super special 
So I'm all about the fighter doing some crit that, you know, takes out somebody's eyeball or that kind of thing. I really do like that. This is interesting, though, this uh, natural 20 being able to hit mat creatures only hit by magic or something. That's actually kind of a really great idea, Jason. I think I might actually start incorporating that um, just to give them a chance, I guess. Because that is one of the things in OSR-type games that <laughs> can be kind of awkward, right? As if the players just don't happen to have magic items and they face a creature where they can only be hit by it. It, it, it can feel a little frustrating, I think, uh, for the players, I would imagine. Uh, I mean, I, <laughs> I've done it before and then they realize they need to run. But I think that can become old real quick. So having that, even the tiniest chance that uh, they can hit the creature is probably a good idea. Yeah, and as far as engagement goes, I, I think there's tons of way to engage players. Some GMs do a much better job than others. I, VTTs aren't inherently bad by any means. I, I know if you listen to me, it sounds like I say they are. Just because I personally don't like them. And because personally, I prefer that theater of the mind or at a table, it's fine because you're looking at each other. But I like to be able to look at each other. And part of my problem with VTTs is my tech issues with playing off, say, a laptop with one screen. So I have a hard time having, you know, the 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 visual where I'm looking at all the players, plus looking at the screen, plus having a character sheet open. And heaven forbid, if we're playing Fantasy Grounds, now I have to have multiple screens just to have room for the map and the combat box and all. So maybe it's more my tech limitations or why I don't like VTTs. I don't know. I definitely have noticed though, an issue with some players that they're, you know, and, and I've seen it where you're playing the game, you're into the game and you know, some and the GM's describing something all of some players like, where's this on the character sheet? How do I set up this special script on the character sheet? How do I do this on the character sheet? while the GM's trying to describe a scene. You know, the GM's describing a social interaction, the player's like, where's the button to do this? And, and you know, you're not supposed to be doing anything at that point because you're just talking. So it's definitely some players do get distracted, or at least until they've mastered the VTT, they feel they need to master it over the game, you know, over the act playing of the game. And, and I find that personally annoying but obviously everybody's a little bit different and it's not those, it's just those players and their style. So I'm not putting them down. It's just different styles. You know, you know what I mean? I don't know. Overall VTT is bad. And I cut myself off. I was trying to say VTT is bad there at the very end, but to be fair, they're not. It, it's just different styles, different strokes for different folks. Um, I, I just personally, you know, when I run games, I prefer not to use VTTs. I prefer to use Zoom or Google Meet, have everybody r roll real dice and, you, you know, just do theater of the mind or I'll throw up whatever. I mean, I still throw up pictures and play music and all that stuff, but I don't know. It, but ultimately, I'm a social player, so it doesn't matter. I'll play any game of the VTT, be perfectly happy. So maybe I should let the people that are more, more care about the game mechanics fight this out. And, and I'll sit this out because I know I'm definitely in the um, minority, in my opinion, on VTTs. Anyhow, great show. Look forward to your next one. And I cut myself off. I was trying to say VTT is bad there at the very end. But to be fair, they're not. It, it, it's just different styles, different strokes for different folks. Um, I, I just personally, you know, when I run games, I prefer not to use VTTs. I prefer to use Zoom or Google Meet, have everybody r roll real dice. And, 
you, you know, just do theater of the mind or I'll throw up whatever. I mean, I still throw up pictures and play music and all that stuff, but I don't know. It, but ultimately, I'm a social player, so it doesn't matter. I'll play any game of the BTT, be perfectly happy. So maybe I should let the people that are more more care about the game mechanics fight this out, and, and I'll sit this out because I know I'm definitely in the um, minority, in my opinion, on BTTs. Anyhow, great show. Look forward to your next one. I think we're basically in the same camp, uh, Jason, on the VTTs. I'm not a huge fan of them for the various reasons that we've both said. Yeah, I mean, obviously, in the world, I'd love to play. My favorite way of playing is in person. Second would be just very simply over Zoom um, and with less to worry about. Like, I, I trust my players to roll their own dice, and that's cool with me. Um, I think that when you are live streaming, which I do a bit of, um, there is something to the idea of like everybody using the the uh, the VTT and, and actually showing the 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 viewers that, but I don't do that. So <laughs> because some of my players prefer to roll actual dice, and I am totally fine with allowing them to do that. So some roll on the VTT, some roll uh, physical dice, and I am totally fine with whatever they want. But yeah, I think maybe a possible solution to the idea of like people messing with the VTT while you're playing is to make sure that when you're setting them up to give players access ahead of time and, you know, and say, hey, uh, you know, if you want to set up any of your macros or whatever, please do it before the game. That's not going to stop the person that's going to do it anyways during the game. But I don't know, at least if you put it out there, I feel like you have more grounds to kind of say something after the game and say, hey, you know, we just discussed this. But um, yeah, I could definitely see that being a problem. In any case, uh, I'm with you, though. I mean, I would prefer to minimize uh, VTTs in my game playing, but I would be more than happy to jump into somebody's game that's on a VTT. And I do use them to share maps and stuff. I use Roll20 uh, because that's just the system I found works for me right now uh, versus Zoom because it's easier for me to do that with the live streams. I mean, I'm really doing it. I remember there was a conversation a while back where uh, I presented the idea that you play differently when you are when you know you're doing it for an audience and uh, this is one of those things, right? Like I know that I'm doing it for an audience when I live stream. So I use the VTT because it's cleaner than me sharing my screen on Zoom. You know, when it's just me playing with my friends and nobody's going to see it, I almost always just use Zoom. So there you go. Okay, so we've got a unboxing here. Uh, this is just a priority mail, uh, mailing box. This is a size, it's called medium. Um, I'm pretty sure I know what's in here because I ordered something right before I went away and I just came back. So let me put the phone down for a second. Let's see, we're gonna pull this. I think I should be able to open this with just my hands and no knife. All right. Let's see, we got, uh, oh, it's pretty. They just used the normal tape, you know, the, uh, they didn't put any extra tape on it, so it should just pull right open once I, hopefully you can hear that. Oh, work for it. All right, here we go. Oh, okay, we got bubble wrap inside. Wrapped up in bubbles, no popcorn, so that's good. Jason will be happy. This is nice bubble wrap. We've got it. It's not, and actually I'm appreciating this. A lot of times when people bubble wrap stuff, they uh, they tape the bubble wrap. This person just kind of wrapped it around multiple times, which to me works way better because then you don't have to cut into it and possibly damage what's inside. Ah, uh, yes, that's exactly what I thought. I bubble wrap this. All right. This is the James Bond 007 role-playing in Her Majesty's Secret Service, the complete basic set. So, I may have mentioned this before here, I don't know. Um, when I was a kid, 
Top Secret was our favorite game. Once we discovered TSR's Top Secret, we played that way more than anything else. We played Gamma World, we played Star Frontiers, we played Boot Hill a lot, we played AD&D, of course, and Basic. But once we discovered Top Secret, that was the game of choice. And I think part of it was because that game actually plays better with fewer people, and a lot of times there was only a couple of us, maybe three of us uh, at a time to play. So uh, this that was like our favorite game. I didn't even realize that this James Bond game existed, but I've heard several uh, reviews of it saying it was awesome. And one of the big things that they say about this game is that it you, it's better for cinematic stuff than Top Secret. Top Secret's definitely a crunchy numbers game, and actually a lot of the TSR modules are um, kind of more like raids than they are spy stuff. Even though the game itself, I think, could work well for spy stuff, I, apparently this game is kind of more loosey-goosey in that sense, so it gives you more options by having less options, if that makes sense. Uh, and it also has a system of uh, task resolution that gives you uh, a range, so it's not like you succeed or you fail, it's kind of like a how well do you succeed or fail? And it's comparable to the other person that you're dealing with. So all this I've heard and all that sounds fantastic to me. Uh, I did look around online for a PDF of it. Um, and, uh, you know, because it's, it's out of print and I guess in theory in the public domain. Um, and I did find one. So if you look hard, you can find something. It was made by uh, Victory Games, it looks like. Um, but of course, I don't. You know, not that this money's going to the creator, but I always like to have the real thing if I can. So, okay, so here we go. I'm opening it up. It's a box set. It's kind of, it feels like a little bit smaller than like a TSR type box set. I don't have one next to me to compare it, but the book itself, though, is a uh, fairly thick book. It's paperback. This one's a little damaged, but it is, um, let's see. Yeah, this is not in the best shape in the world, but it's not terrible. Um, it's black and white with some splashes of blue inside. We've got uh, various uh, James Bondy thing. What's cool about this is because they bought the rights to actually James Bond, they can use all that cool stuff. Um, yeah, it looks like there's some fun stuff in here. Um, let's see, this book is actually uh, including a character sheet. It looks like in the back we've got, uh, let's see. Oh, there's a multiplication. Uh, let's see, there's a 70 pages there. Okay, so the actual book is 155, um, and then we've got, um, well, 156, I should say, and then we've got some tables. Oh, apparently this was owned by Andy Beam, or Andy Beam might have been that character, because I see Andy Beam written on the <laughs> in pen on this. That's fantastic. Um, so yeah, this is going to be really interesting to look through, because I, I am, you know, fascinated by that. But okay, so besides the book, inside this box set... It said it was pretty complete. We'll see in a second. Um, we've got what looks to be... Yep, we got like a GM screen. Okay, it's very colorful. I like it. It's a four-panel uh, letter size, it looks like, standing up. And we've got some... Uh, this looks like some kind of a... The American Fighting Cruiser, 1797 to 1988. So it's got some boats. And... Cruiser Strike Force 2000. I'm guessing this is a... This is popular mechanics on it. I'm guessing this has to do with... Um, oh my god. The year is 2000. So this looks like it's an advertisement, I think. Huh, I'll look deeper into that. Okay, there's a book... A uh, thing of character record sheets here. A whole pad of them. Looks pretty good. Then we've got... 
like cardboard standees. And it looks like they're all here from what I can tell. And some of them are like vehicles and some are agents, it looks like. And some little black, uh, you know, plastic things to put them in. So basically you can do the little cutouts if you want to do tactical stuff. And finally, there is something called Game Master's Pack. Complete package, complete package of, for the Game Master of 007. And this is just a square, I guess for tactical stuff. Oh, so I'm guessing this Game Master Pack was... Okay, this is the Game Master screen, character records, the sculpted characters, and the grid sheet. Okay, so, all right, so this basically is just the cover for the Game Master Pack. So it looks like you got two things here. You've got your Game Master Pack, which is everything I described, and then you've got, except for, the core rulebook, which is its own dealio. So it looks pretty good. I think I paid, like, about $25 for this, maybe a little bit less with shipping, uh, on eBay. So I will report back at some point as to how I like it. Okay, so I'm looking at this <laughs> this this foldout. Um, it says uh, Cruiser Strike Force 2000. It has a popular mechanics logo down at the bottom. It's basically a poster, and it's got this little description. I actually started reading it wrong. The year is 2020. Hmm. A U.S. Navy task force is escorting a merchant convoy when trouble explodes. And that talks about fighting the Soviets. It's very funny. But then now at the very end of it, it says, Packing this futuristic might, the U.S. Navy stands ready to fight the sea battles of tomorrow in a world that helps it, it never has to. So it looks like it's some kind of a, a game. I'm curious whether it's a role-playing game or a video game or whatever. I'll have to, if anybody knows about this, uh, let me know. Okay, then, this is the real outro. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Um, if you don't already, you can follow me over on YouTube. I'd love to hear from you guys, so go ahead and leave me some messages, and I'll see you soon.